0: Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew, uh, the 26th chapter. And we'll be looking at verses 36 through 46. Matthew 26 this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 36 through 46. Follow along as I read uh, this text this morning that we'll be uh, preaching from, the Suffering Savior. Matthew 26 and verse 36 says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. That ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed unto the hand of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. From the time of Stephen, the church's first martyr, to the present day in Africa and Asia, the Middle East, we have Christians who are willingly laying down their lives because of their faith in Christ. You know, stories of courage in the face of accusers and executioners continue to motivate us to be faithful unto death. Weighing the price borne by Jesus Christ at the cross for our sins and the sublime richness of the promises in the gospel, believers have faced beast fire and sword and axe and drowning and machetes and guns and poison with a sense of honor of being counted worthy to suffer death for the sake of Jesus Christ. In the early part of the second century, the Roman emperor Trajan confronted Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, about his faith in Christ. Ignatius did not shrink from his accuser, but instead he gave testimony. He said this, I have Jesus Christ in my heart. He was crucified for my sins. He was taken to Rome, that is, Trajan was taken, or Ignatius was taken to Rome and made a spectacle before thousands that were gathered at the Colosseum. And when Trajan sentenced him to be devoured by the wild beasts, Ignatius triumphantly prayed, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast vouchsafed thus to honor me. And then declared, I am God's grain to be ground between the teeth of wild beasts, so that I may become a holy loaf for the Lord. The lion soon left nothing but a few gnawed bones when his friends took and bar- which his friends took and buried, and knowing that he was with Christ, which is far better. And then there was the elderly Polycarp, also in the second century who upon being threatened by the Roman authorities declared, you threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. And then sentenced to the flames for refusal to confess Caesar as Lord and God. Polycarp prayed, Lord God, Father of our blessed Savior, I thank Thee that I have been deemed worthy to receive the crown of martyrdom, that I may die for Thee and for Thy cause. I wonder this morning, how wholeheartedly are we sold out to Christ? That much? To my knowledge, this did not happen to our missionary of the week, uh, Tim Smith, but it could have. As a missionary was leaving Central Asian country after having spent many years there teaching the gospel, an 18-year-old convert to Christ accompanied him to the airport to see his spiritual father off. And he told him, this will probably be the last time that I will see you. I'm I'm sure that my family will kill me for becoming a Christian. But it's been worth it all. And that was, has been the attitude of countless unnamed believers whom I suppose we will see much closer to the throne than ourselves who have suffered so little for the sake of the gospel. Looking to Christ, thinking of the sacrifice that he offered at the cross, considering the power of the gospel to save and to sustain, and knowing the future with Christ for eternity has given strength to weak believers in the same way time of trials, suffering, and death. And yet it's interesting that in light of this, some commentators tend to shrink back from the scene of Christ's agony at Gethsemane. They they think it's strange that one has, uh, has inspired courage in the face of martyrdom for so many through the centuries, would struggle so much in the hours before his death. And what some fail to see is that Christ's struggle was not was never over merely dying. It was not simply the cup of death, but it was the cup of God's wrath that brought such agony to our Lord. Jesus Christ's agony in Gethsemane reveals the horror of sin and the triumphs of grace. But how do we see this in this portion of Christ's passion? I want you to consider with me this morning how Gethsemane's agony helps us to live in triumph of grace. Notice, first of all, the demonstration of suffering. The demonstration of suffering. Each gospel writer paints his own portrait of the suffering of Jesus Christ. John does it by giving us details of his humiliation and his agony on the cross. Luke tells us of Christ granting life to the repentant thief hanging at his side on the cross Mark and Matthew are very similar, as both recount the mockery of the bystanders in Christ's cry of dereliction. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give similar accounts of the scene in Gethsemane. With Luke being the most abbreviated, the shortest of them. And here we open the verses of Matthew's account of Christ's agony in Gethsemane, and we see him opening our understanding to the suffering that he experienced, to provide us redemption. Now I want you to keep in mind that the events at Gethsemane followed Christ's declaration to his most loyal followers. Remember, as we said last week, he said, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Now late in the evening, possibly even nearing midnight, Jesus and his disciples make their way up the Mount of Olives into a place called Gethsemane. The name follows the Hebrew rendering of olive press, giving us an indication that this was a type of orchard, likely a walled-in with an olive press at the center and offering some seclusion from anyone passing by and Jesus and his disciples no doubt had been here from time to time as a friend in Jerusalem likely offered it to him as a retreat. Gethsemane became the scene of a deep struggle. The deep struggle of the Son of God preparing to face the agony of divine wrath. Notice the consciousness of wrath. After leaving the other disciples to sit probably near the entrance of the garden area, Jesus, it says here, took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now both of those words, sorrowful and heavy, describe to us intense anguish. The first showing deep sadness due to what was about to take place on the cross, and the second referring to the inward struggle that may have been involved, a feeling of shrinking from the weight of wrath. Present tense of the verb suggests a growing consciousness of the cross. The thought of death was not the subject of distress, but it was the reason for the death. That was the struggle. The innocent Holy One would be for the first time knowing the horror of sin. Now he had seen it many times in the lives of those around him. But now he that knew no sin would become sin for us. All of the Father's justice focused its white-hot wrath like the intense heat of a billion suns aimed into one spot, His Son on the cross. Jesus told these friends, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He was faced with the bitter loneliness of His redemptive task. He called for His friends to keep vigilance in prayer and spiritual consciousness with him. And though he must suffer alone for the sins, he saw the need for these friends standing with him in this hour of his mission. Everywhere he turned, every sight before his eyes, every sound to his ears, evidenced the grief of becoming sin for us and bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath. And and so being separated from the Father's tender love and fellowship, Grief lay so heavily upon him that the weight of it became near bursting in his heart in death. A reality that would soon happen on the cross. Luke records that his agony grew so intense that Christ prayed. His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Blood vessels burst in his head and mingled with the agonizing sweat that fell from his brow in the chill of that night. And then Jesus kind of slips on beyond them a little bit and fell on his face and began to pray. Luke tells us that he knelt down. It seems that the weight of what he felt on his own heart caused him to collapse to the ground. Christ. The eternal word, the creator of the earth, fell upon the very soil that he had made, agonizing in prayer. "O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, He see, he's still deeply conscious of his eternal relationship to his father as God. Fully aware of his equality in the Godhead and the glory that belongs to him as God, he now appeals to his father. He says, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Here we see the true humanity of the Lord. God, as God, he was fully conscious of the divine wrath focused upon the sin of those he would redeem. As man that, a man that had never sinned, he was fully conscious of the dark horror and ugliness of sin that he would bear. We see his humanity. Christ suffered as a man for men. He understood the price of redeeming sinful men. He knew the eternal decree. So his prayer was not for God to change the decree but rather as one who had laid aside his prerogatives as God incarnation, he now probes the mind of his Father and cries out by reason of eternal weight that he felt upon his own heart. And the cup that he wanted to pass represented the wine of God's wrath. The term has associations of suffering and of the wrath of God in the Old Testament. It's used here. As well, in Psalm 11 in verse six, we see it says, "Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest." This shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51 in verse 17 says, "Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling, and the, and wrung them out." Ezekiel 23:32 it says thus saith the Lord God thou shalt drink of thy sister's cup deep and large thou shalt be laughed to scorn and had in derision and containeth much thou shalt be filled with drunkenness and sorrow with the cup of astonishment and desolation with the cup of thy sister Samaria thou shalt even drink it now it wasn't just the dying that wrung out his soul it was the consciousness of a divine wrath poured out with the intensity of an earth-sized volcano, if you please, spewing forth a divine vengeance that you and I deserve. Except that the vengeance would fall upon the only one who deserved no, no vengeance. He would drink the cup until he had drained the last dregs of God's wrath for us. And if in the infinite ability of the Father there were another course to take, another way, Jesus prayed, then let this cup pass from me. Now, of course, at this point we must stop and think, if the terror of divine judgment left Jesus Christ so distressed, should not we be alarmed Concerning our own sins. I think sometimes we don't think much about sin, do we? We don't think about how horrible it is. If Jesus Christ, the God-man, understood the horror and the fierceness of God's wrath so much that he prayed for the Father to let the cup of wrath pass by, if possible... Should each one of us not be intensely concerned about our own fate before the holy God? Christ drank the cup of God's wrath that you and I might receive the cup of blessing from His hand. Secondly, we see Him submitting to the Father. Submitting to the Father, the holy resolve of Jesus Christ fixed immovably Upon the Father's will, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, Christ prayed. As a man ga- grasping the weight of infinite wrath, knowing that he would bear the sins of the world, Jesus prayed for the cup to pass. Now that was the human desire showing itself. Never do we see the incarnation more vividly displayed. As God, he knew what lay ahead at the cross, as man he knew the horror, the alienation, and the wrath that belonged, would belong to Him. And our Lord submitted His prayer to the will of the Father. And just as He had taught the disciples to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So He practiced as He faced the greatest demand ever placed upon anyone Again, he prayed, "O my father, if that be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He was submitting to the father's will. God, the father was pleased to give his work. This work to his most beloved and only son. No one else would be able to drink the cup of God's wrath. Before the world was founded, the Father decreed that the Son would bear the Godhead's infinite judgment against sin. The second Adam would deliver the redeemed from the curse upon the first Adam and all his posterity. And we learn something more remarkable remarkable about our Lord as we read these words here. What mattered to him more than anything was doing the will of the Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, that's not a meaningless phrase in prayer. Even though it meant utter alienation from the Father, he did not falter in submitting to the Father's will. He trusted his Father's wisdom and purpose. He submitted obediently. Even as Christ sympathized with, sympathizes with us in our times of weakness, he comes to our aid in times when we are tempted to withdraw due to the heaviness of the divine providence that bears upon our lives. Hebrews 5 and verse 8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. As one has, that has suffered far beyond anything we can imagine in doing God's will, He draws near to us when we're tempted to withdraw and give up. Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. See, Gethsemane shows the suffering Savior who's willing to bear the judgment of God against us. I wonder this morning, have you trusted him? Are you relying upon what He has done, and that alone, for your salvation? Do you cling to Him and trust Him as you face suffering and despair? I trust you do. Notice, secondly, the exhortation for temptation. Jesus had already warned His disciples here, of their own weakness, and the fact that they would all be offended and would stumble because of the sentence of death upon him. And it seems that none of them believed that they were capable of being disloyal to Jesus Christ. But Jesus proves it to them in Gethsemane. The trio Peter, James, and John were called upon in light of the deep consciousness of grief upon Christ to keep watch with him. But as he poured out his soul to the Father, for about an hour the disciples slept. It was late. It was very late. They had experienced a terrible day. Especially by all this talk of Jesus' betrayal and his impending death. And to top it off, he foretold them of their own falling away. And maybe out of sorrow, and maybe just they were weary, they they slept rather than kept watch. But notice Christ's example. Now, Satan is not mentioned here in this narrative, but as Satan had done before in chapter 4, remember Matthew chapter 4, it would be reasonable to believe that the adversary was pressing the Lord at this point with temptation. I think it is kind of borne out in Christ's warning to the disciples. Look at it there in verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's a contrast that's seen in the dignified desires of the human will and the inherent physical weakness of the man. Now we've already looked in our previous study here The disciples failed to realize their own weakness. They were naive and they thought they were capable of of achieving lofty goals in their own strength. Even in his humanity, though sinless, Jesus faced normal human weaknesses. He had to eat, he had to sleep, he had to rest. We find him hungry and tired and asleep. Now the feelings of sorrow and grief and distress weigh upon him physically and emotionally. And when he told his disciples, the flesh is weak, he understood the weakness of the physical under the pressures of sorrow. And yet in every way, Jesus Christ displayed strength as he depended upon the Father. He watched and he prayed as as one who would have felt more much more intensely from sin and temptation than any of us could imagine, set an example for us to do the same. Jesus gave us two sentinels that guarded His earthly life in face of temptation. He says, watch and pray. After His first hour of prayer, Jesus returned to the disciples and found them asleep. And so He said to Peter, Kind of using the plural pronoun to address all three. He's talking to Peter, but he's talking to them all. He says, And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? This in a time of alienation when Christ needed their watchfulness. They were sleeping Failing to keep alert to the temptation that Christ had already warned them of. And so he exhorted them. Watch and pray. That ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Watchfulness and prayer are still the two sentinels. To guard your mind, my mind. Our thoughts, our tongues, our actions in the face of temptation. We do not have to go very far to find temptation, do we? As a matter of fact, we don't have to go anywhere to encounter temptation because it kind of lurks in our minds all about us, and yet God gave us two guards to help us. Someone has explained that Jesus meant by keeping watch, they said to watch is as much as to be our guard to take heed, to consider all ways and means whereby an enemy might approach to us. It calls for a universal carefulness and diligence, exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways and the baits and the methods of Satan, the occasions and the advantages of sin in the world that we be not entangled so that in this word, is pressed on us. In watchfulness, we recognize our propensity to fall. So we need to seek to avoid those occasions, occasions and to use every means to withstand in such times. The devil's out to get you. And we need to watch and to pray. Now, this is a little bit more of the practical. Let me give you four ways in which we can be watchful. Number one, know your own heart. Know and realize that you have natural leanings towards sin. Many of Satan's devices fall along the the lines of natural areas of weakness and lust. Guard the areas of your life. Don't give room to the devil's devices. Secondly, avoid the snares of the nat- your natural leanings by staying away from the things that lure you to sin. Seeing we have so little power over our hearts, when we- once they meet with suitable enticements, we are to keep them apart, as a man would do a fire from combustible parts of his house where he dwells. You know what? It's not very smart to store gasoline next to your wood stove. You understand what I'm saying? Avoid the snares of your natural leanings. Make no provision for the flesh. Thirdly, make provision against approaching temptation. Greatest treasure against temptations found right here in the gospel. Gospel provisions will do this work. That is, keep the heart full of the sense of the love of God in Christ. While the provision is found in the law are helpful, they can help restrain us. It's the mind fixed on what God in Christ has done for you. What Christ has tasted on your behalf that keeps you resilient against temptation. And then put in the following safeguards. Discover the reality of temptation early so you can engage with it quickly before it gets its foot in the door. Consider the aim of temptation. The aim of temptation is to destroy you, to ruin you. So hate it. And meet the temptation with thoughts of faith concerning Christ crucified for you. The shield of faith. We look at the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. The shield of faith focuses on Christ crucified, His love and His his suffering for sin. And then go to God in prayer. That's the second sentinel. Remember, watch and pray. Plead for the speedy deliverance through Christ. Call upon Christ to give you aid, even as He resisted temptation. Look to the Lord as the one who promises deliverance. And so Christ gave us an example. Let us learn from his command to watch and pray so we may not enter into the snare of temptation ourselves. Notice thirdly, the valuation of redemption. The valuation. Redemption came at a price. And this narrative... This text that we have here ends on a great note of triumph. It literally goes from agony to triumph as God the Son in submission to the Father rises to meet His betrayer. We notice here in the third time of prayer, Jesus returns to His sleeping disciples. Verse 45, Then cometh He to His disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand the Son of Man is betrayed on the hands of sinners, because of Luke twenty-two forty-six. and his part of this, it, there's some question whether this is a uh, in the, is a question or a command. I think it's best to consider it as a question. As our Lord came and watched over his disciples who had failed to watch and pray. In Luke twenty-two forty-six, 46, it says, And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. <coughs> In our text, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is at hand. He was deeply conscious that the time had come. And so he rose to the occasion. Redemption would be purchased with the price of, of his blood he did not hide or back off or try to find another way the father had sent him on a mission that he uh, that would demand that he face the alienation of divine wrath and he faced the hour of suffering with boldness and then we come to the meeting of the betrayer verse 46 says, rise, let us be going. Behold, it is at, at, at hand that doth betray me. The battle of Gethsemane was over. The cross was to be embraced for sinners. Divine judgment would be satisfied. God would be just in forgiving sinners. And sinners would rejoice in being declared justified before God. Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. Understanding fully the awfulness and the terror of divine judgment against sinners. He did that for sinners like you and me. He did that that we might become a part of his eternal family. And yet in spite of the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished, there are still those and there may still be those here today within the sound of my voice that persist to think, well, there's still more in the cup to drink. And so they run here and there. They try, try to desperately appease the wrath of God through this deed or that deed, hoping they might find God's pleasure instead of His wrath. Listen, Jesus Christ drank the cup to its last bitter drop. He consumed God's wrath for you and for me so that we might know the joy of living in submission to the Father, even as He does for all eternity. There's nothing more you can do to satisfy God's wrath, to satisfy God's judgment. It's been done. It was done on the cross. Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath. Heads bowed and eyes closed this morning as we